Okay, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages, Amen. Remember those skinny jeans we were talking about yesterday that somehow went in the washer and the dryer and they came out and they don't quite fit right anymore and that your winter coat that you bring out of the closet and all of a sudden, oops, yeah, you know, it doesn't quite zip up as, uh, as easily as it used to before and so on. So... Imagine now for one moment, okay? Imagine now for one moment that you could pull your favorite jeans out from the drawer or your favorite winter coat out from the closet. And every time you put it on, it was tailor-made. Every time, you know, I gained a little bit extra weight here, I lost a little bit of extra weight there. Nobody ever loses any weight, but anyways, you know, right? <laughs> Just gained, right? Um, there would, it would, you know, it could be tailor, it could be tailor-made just for you. It could, it, it could fit like a glove every single time, no matter what. Imagine if it, it, it changed, if it changed to take your shape. Yesterday we were talking about us changing to, to take the shape of the world around us, conforming. Now imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if you stayed the same and it took your shape. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about being, being transformed. Like, think of, like, like the Transformers, right? Um, Bumblebee was maybe, like, the last Transformers movie to come out, right? So, Bumblebee is always Bumblebee. Whether he's, like, a massive robotic Transformer or whether he is a, what is he, like, a BMW Beetle or something? Huh? What kind of car is he? Camaro, right? Or whether he's his yellow Camaro, right? Whether he's this or he's that, he's always Bumblebee. The fact that he transforms, that the shape on the outside changes. So what happens when he changes from a Camaro to this massive you know, transformer robot? His outward shape is a truer reflection of his inward person, right? Do you see how that's exactly the opposite of the conformism we were talking about yesterday? Where the conformism we were talking about yesterday was the denial of my true self and the change of my outward shape. And we're going to go into that a lot. Uh, we're going to go a lot deeper into that today, right? Richard Bach, uh, you know, someone famous in English literature says, what the caterpillar calls the end of the world the master, master calls a butterfly. The caterpillar thinks it's going into its cocoon to die. But the master of the universe knows that that's just the beginning of the life of the butterfly. What I really want to share with you is um, my wife encouraged me to get this book. She bought it for me, actually, is more... Uh, appropriate way of saying it. So, so great a salvation by, um, by Epiphanius. And there's a chapter in here called the transfiguration of Christ and the transfiguration of the disciples. And um, a lot of what I'm sharing with you today is almost like, it's not word for word what he says, but almost. It's certainly idea by idea. I'm taking his ideas and I'm just going to bring them to life for you. So when you look at the transfiguration, 
Jesus says, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he asks them, who do men say that I am? And they say, some people say this, some people say that. He says to them, who do you say that I am? And St. Peter makes the famous confession of faith. Um, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers him and says, you are Peter and on this rock I build my church. Some oriental uh, commentators would say that he, Jesus was talking about this rock of faith, this statement of faith. I, upon this statement of faith I build my church. Some people would say that he is St. Peter the person, but that's besides the point right now. And, that, and then Jesus says to them, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And he says that to them. And then six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain, and he's transfigured before them. And when he's transfigured before them, St. Mark describes it, that his clothes became so white, whiter than any launderer on earth could launder. And there's so many beautiful contemplations that we could talk about, about the transfiguration. But that's not what Amba Epiphanius talks about. What he talks about is this word transfiguration. The Greek word for it is metamorphomai, like metamorphosis. Okay, And it's a compound word, meta, to change, to shift, to transform, and morph, the outward expression. So it means that the outward expression is proceeding from being uh, from within and being truly representative of one's inward character and nature. That's what it means. So it means that the outward expression, kind of like we we're talking about like, Forgive me to make the parallel between Jesus and Bumblebee. You know, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but that when Bumblebee appears as this like large robot, it's more representative of who he truly is than being a yellow Camaro. Although he's both, right? But when he's a yellow Camaro, he looks like any other yellow Camaro. That's just a car. That's not a transformer, right? And his inward being is hidden. In the transfiguration, the inward being of Christ is revealed. His outward shape is changed. Yesterday we were talking about conformism, also an outward shape which is changing. But in the transfiguration, the outward shape of Christ is changed, but not to conceal his inward reality, but to reveal his inward reality. Some of the early church fathers say, that it is not the appearance of Christ that was changed, but the eyes of the disciples that were opened to see that which was always there. Whether it's this or it's that, it's, it's neither here nor there, because the point is this, is that in the transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured or transformed or metamorphomai or whatever word you want to use, what the disciples saw after the transformation or whatever was more representative of Jesus's inward reality than what they had seen before. And what they had seen before could, was described by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 too. And it says, he grew up before him, the father, like a tender shoot, like a, like a, like a, just like a, like a little seedling, like a little green shoot coming out of the ground. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty 
nor any majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's what it says in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about Christ. Of course, Isaiah 53 is all, it's a prophecy all about Jesus' His suffering and his crucifixion. But it says about him, he had no beauty nor majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's the Jesus that everybody saw on a day-to-day -day basis. I, how Isaiah describes Jesus, of course, having never seen him, but prophesying about him, was Jesus was bland. Jesus was nothing special. Jesus was an average Nazareth boy an average Galilee boy, scrawny, you know, not particularly handsome. You know, like it says about Saul, saw King Saul, he was head and shoulders. He was a whole head taller than everyone else. It says about David that he was ruddy and he had bright eyes and blonde hair. He was, he was beautiful. He was beautiful. It says about David, about Saul, he was tall and broad and strong. They were remarkable people. They stood out in a crowd. Jesus, no, it's just average. It's just average. So when he was transfigured, his inward reality became more clearly represented. I know I'm really, I'm, I know I'm really emphasizing a point here, but it's really, really critically important, and I'll tell you why. Because in St. Paul's epistles, the word transformed appears again, Amba Epiphanius tells us. In 2 Corinthians 11, St. Paul is talking about false apostles. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So he says there's false apostles out there that are transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then he says, huh, you think, you think, are you shocked? And no wonder, he says. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if, the minister, if, the, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. The word here for transform is different. It's not metamorphomai like in the transfiguration. It's a different meta. It's meta schematizai. Schematizatai. I don't, I'm not a Greek scholar in any way, shape, or form. But the important thing is to know that there's a difference. This one is a meta change to change the appearance of, but it's a different meta. It's a meta schema. What's a schema? To change one's external appearance or image so that one's form or external image does not reflect or express one's internal character. He's saying that the demons transform themselves to appear as angels of light. You see how it's categorically the opposite of the transfiguration. So if you and I are creating the image and likeness of God, to conform to this world is to conceal our hidden reality. To return back to the image and likeness in which we were created in is to show, to reveal the inward Reality which is concealed. Like, let's be honest, okay? I'm creating the image and likeness of God, but I don't look, I don't look anything like God. I'm creating the image and likeness of God, but I don't speak anything like, like Him. I don't behave like Him. 
right? Somebody cuts me off on the road and I get road rage and I go crazy, right? But when Jesus is wounded and beaten on our behalf, he's like a lamb to the slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth. So I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm nothing like him. I don't look like him. Although I was created like him, the likeness we were talking about yesterday has been distorted, right? So as I return back to that likeness, as I reveal the inward reality, this is critically important. This is a very big difference between how in Eastern Christianity we understand things and how things are understood in Western Christianity or just in other branches of Christianity. This is like a, a small detail, but it makes all the difference. And it makes a difference and it has direct ap application to your spiritual life, to how, you're see, how you see yourself and how you see the world and all of this. Look, what we believe is not that, we don't believe that you're missing something. You know, like, you, like, like I, I read like a lot of blogs and stuff like this. I follow a lot of entrepreneurship blogs and stuff like that. And I, like it's one of my hobbies, you know, productivity and efficiency and all that kind of stuff, right? Anyways, and there's every, every blog post is, Three ways to da 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 da, five ways to this and this and that, the six ways this and that, and, and so on, right? And the, the hidden premise behind those lists of three ways to this and five ways to that is, is this, is that, look, look, John, you're doing everything right, but if only you did this, that's the secret ingredient you're missing to like skyrocket your productivity or skyrocket your efficiency or whatever, right? And all of them, like that's the basic premise that all of this is based on. That's not the basic premise in Christianity. The basic premise in Eastern Christianity is you are created in the image and likeness of God, but then that image has been distorted largely by having other stuff on top of the image that are concealing it. We're celebrating the Feast of the Cross and that's the perfect, the perfect, perfect analogy. Y'all may or may not know the story of how St. Helen discovered the cross. Well, they had, covered, they had covered Golgotha with a mound of garbage. They, for 300 years, they'd been piling garbage on Golgotha, right? And so what did they have to do to find the cross? They had to dig through the garbage. Once they digged through the garbage and they removed all the garbage they found the cross and then they didn't know which cross it was of the three crosses and they brought the dead guy out in a dead coffin, put him on and so on and he came to life, right? So that's the story of you and me. I'm created in the image and likeness of God Almighty, but then there's all this other garbage in my life. So it's not that I'm missing some key ingredient. I actually have everything I need, but I've got other junk in my life that's piled up on top and I need to remove it so that I can see more clearly the treasure that's, that's underneath. St. John Chrism gives us an example about the pearl of great price. He says, if the pearl of great price were covered in mud, would you then discard it? No, of course not. What would you do? You, you would remove the dirt, right? And then he says, you are the pearl of great price that 
the father sold all that he had, his only begotten son, that he could have him. What we're talking about here is, what we're talking about here is a change that happens in us that makes our inward reality of being just like God himself, just like Jesus himself, more evident, more clear. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then this business of being renewed by the, the, the renewing of your mind. You know what it's like? St. Paul tells us it's like a brain transplant. In Philippians 2, he says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Like, let's take the mind of Christ Jesus and put it in you. How would you see the world? How would you act? How would you behave? Almost more importantly than all of that, how would you see God? How would you see yourself? If I had the mind of Christ. What does that mean? St. Paul dissects it for us. He, like, he, he, he opens it up for us. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's a part there that we, we pray in the Gregorian liturgy where, where he says that although being God, he, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does it mean he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? In another translation, it says he did not consider it snatching or grasping. What he's saying here, what St. Paul is saying here is he didn't hold on to his, the rights of his divinity. Remaining fully divine and fully human, he accepted, he accepted to let go of the, his right as, as, as God that he might become a servant, not just a servant, but a slave, a slave of all, and humble himself and become obedient. Obedient to what point? To the point of death, not just any death, but the death of the cross. This is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. A verse that always gets me, this just kills me. This verse just, just kills me. Even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me say that again. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Abuna, can I carry your bag? Abuna, can I make you a plate? Abuna, can I this? Abuna. Jesus is just an average Galilee boy. Nobody is chasing him to carry his bag or to make him a plate or to get him a chair. Or to... Like, am I better than my master? My master came to be served, came to serve, not to be served. That's the mind of Christ. Why? So he could bring salvation, so he could bring life, so he could bring life back to those who had it before. That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is to serve, is to give himself to give of himself, to give from what he has, but to the point of then the ultimate extent of giving himself. 2015, May 2015, we asked His Holiness Pope Tuadras if we could plant 
a new mission to serve the poor in Southeast Scarborough, way, way out in the middle of nowhere where there's no other Coptic churches, nothing there, right? Uh, he said, sure, what patron saint do you want to you know, be your patron saint? We asked him, Sayyidina, can we ask for St. Peter and St. Peter to be our patron saints? He's like, who, St. Peter? I said, St. Peter the Apostle. He said, yeah, sure. And uh, St. Peter the, the Worshipper. And Sayyidina said, who's he? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know who he is, right? He's not a saint that's like, he's in the Synexarium. He's not somebody we talk about much. He wasn't known initially as being St. Peter the Merciful or the Worshipper. He was known as being St. Peter the Merciless in his town where he was. And he was cruel, very rich man, he was very, and he was cruel. One day he was walking in the market and a beggar kept chasing him, begging from them. So he took an old dry loaf of bread and he smacked him with it and he threw it at him. And he said, take this and shut up and go away. That night he had a dream that his soul was taken from him. And Christ was sitting on the throne and said, bring out the good works of my servant Peter that we may celebrate him. And the angels were scurrying all around the kingdom looking for something that they could, that they could, some one good thing he did in his life. They couldn't find anything. Finally, an angel came and brought the old dry loaf and said, once upon a time, Peter had mercy on a poor man and gave this to him for his hunger. And Jesus said, let us celebrate him. So he woke up and he was shocked. And he said, no, 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 I can't keep living my life like this. So he started giving to the poor. And then he started selling his properties to give to the poor. And then when he had sold everything and gave it to the poor, he sold everything he had. And then he went and became a disciple of, of uh, some monks in the desert. And then he started to worship God with them there and lived a deep life of asceticism. And then a, a poor pe people came to beg from him there, but he had nothing left. So he had an idea. He said he sold himself as a slave so he could give the money to the poor. And he served a, ma a master for several years as a slave until finally he released him and he went back to the desert and finished his life living in asceticism. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a pretty extreme example to go sell yourself as a slave, right? But these, these, the Synexarium is there to bring the word of God to life for us. To show us that you can, somebody, St. Peter did it, you can do it too. Maybe your calling is to sell yourself as a slave and give all the money to the poor and so on. But maybe I could just start off by in honor giving precedence one to another. Like it says a little further in Romans 12. We're studying Romans 12 today. But, you know, maybe I can just, as a start, I could give other people honor. I can give them precedence. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, how can you obey St. Paul who recommends that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, if you continue to follow the model of the world and do not work to renew your minds, if you do not struggle but continue to follow the customary paths of men? There's going to have to be a break. It's just uh, somebody was just asking me before we got started about how how do you like do a job interview or something without appearing proud or being arrogant or at least being arrogant in your heart and we had a great conversation about that i'm not gonna go through it all right now but the point is this is that i can't do business the way other people do business because i'm not of this world 
I have to live in this world. Jesus prays in John 17 earnestly. And he says to the Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Jesus prays. He's praying for us. So he's not praying for us to be out of the world, but with, to stay in the world, but to stay holy. I'm not going to be able to do business the way, the way business is done in the world. Listen to what St. James says. This is the alternative. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Plain and simple. Look, either I'm going to change. We agree that the image is distorted. The likeness, pardon me, is distorted. So I'm changing the likeness. Either I'm going to change it to fit in more with people, or I'm going to change it to be a more true reflection of the likeness that I was created in. St. James is telling us either friendship with the world or friendship with God. But it cannot and it will not ever be both. And he likens to he likens to holding the hand of the world and holding the hand of God to adultery. And the uh, the the slide that I have here is um, of this guy who's like hugging one woman and holding the hand of another. It's adultery. It's adultery. That's what it is. So let's just call it what it is so that we can keep our eyes clear on the goal. This beautiful, a beautiful book all about adultery in the Bible. Bible's full of all kinds of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? <laughs> right? The book of Hosea, the book of Hosea is all about adultery, right? <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament that's great, you know? My, my grade 10 English teacher told me, told us all that there's nothing in English literature which is not, does, is not just a copy of something either in the Bible or in Greek mythology. Other than Shakespeare, he was the first person to come up with some new ideas. And even then, he only has a couple or two or three new ideas. But that's why Shakespeare is so celebrated. But the Bible is full of great stuff. All kinds of murder and blood and gore and incest and yeah the old testament is full of all kinds of terrible stories right so in hosea god tells hosea or hosea depending on how you pronounce it he tells him to go marry a prostitute gomer and so he does and he has three children with her and he doesn't even know if the children that he had with her were his children or not because she was so adulterous and she would go off with other men and then she would come back and he would take her back and then she would go off again and he would take her back, right? And he became the talk of the town, right? Like because, you know, communities weren't as large at the time and everybody knew everybody and everybody knew everybody's business. So he became the talk of the town, Hosea and his wife was cheating on him all the time and he keeps taking her back and this and that. And then God says, that's you, Israel. That's you who is worshiping other gods. And then every time you get into a problem, ah, oh, you come running back to me and I take you back. <coughs> and 
the word return appears in the book of Hosea 22 times. 22 times it says return. And the message of Hosea is not a message of guilt or shame. Nowhere along the line does Hosea guilt or shame Gomer, his adulterous wife. He always receives her. He always receives her back. Sometimes God threatens Israel. And it's hilarious. He says like, like the end of, <laughs> so we won't do a Bible study on Hosea right now, but one day we could do one. At the end of, of Hosea chapter one, he says, you will no longer be my people and I will no longer be your God. And then the first verse in, in, in chapter two, but you will return to me with joy and you will be my people and I will be your God. It's almost like God is saying, it's almost God is like, God is saying like, like your parents tell you like, I'm never going to let you take the car again. But if you need it tomorrow morning, please, you know, it's just the keys are on the, <laughs> you know? He can't, he can't, his, he can't, his heart is too, is too tender, is too soft towards us. That's God. So it's easy to return to him. It's easy to do that U-turn, to turn around. It's easy to go back to him. That's what it means for us to be transformed. To be, for me to be transformed is to, is to go back to Him, to go back, to be restored, to bring back the original, to bring back that which always was supposed to be there, to bring back that which is already there, but is concealed by some junk in my life. And the removal of that junk, that's what repentance is, that's what confession is. But repentance, let's be clear here, God is not like, um, God as I know him anyways, is not like, a, like a, I don't know, uh, like a drama junkie. Like if you're all drama, he's okay. Like he, he loves you all the same, right? But repentance is not necessarily like me, like, like crying and mourning and snotting and, you know, and oh, I'm so bad and I'm such a terrible person. No, no. It's, what happened? How did, I, how did I fall in this sin? How did I end up there? I don't want to ever end up there again. I'm going to take some measures to never end up there again. Whatever it is, if I have to pluck my eye out or cut my right arm off, that's what I'm going to do. Cutting your right arm off in Jesus' time when he was suggesting that rendered you no longer employable. Like you were... You'd rather be a, a homeless beggar on this earth than dishonor God. That's what it means, cut my arm off. Cut your right arm off. Like in a, if you were a laborer and you, have, you don't have your dominant arm, you're not good for very much. Nobody's going to hire you. So you're relegated to begging, right? To pluck one's eye out, same thing. Anybody with a disability in Jesus' time, their only means of gainful employment, if you want to call it that, was begging. Jesus is saying, I would rather be a homeless beggar on this earth than to dishonor God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is to see where's the problem and then cut it out. Maybe it doesn't require literal plucking of one's eye or cutting one's arm off but a cutting off of whatever it is that's going to lead me there. That's what it means to return to God. I want to share with you, like, 
over the years, I've seen a few different models of what it means to examine myself, and I'll end with this. I think I shared this with this group before, either at a conference or maybe just in a random talk on a Friday night. Here's a really beautiful way to examine yourself, a little bit different from the huge. Start off by taking a, just a blank piece of paper, and maybe if you have like a little bit of time in the free time later today or maybe tonight or something, do this. Sit and write down all of Christ's characteristics. Just, just brainstorm, just, you know, you know, brain dump everything you know about Jesus. He's kind, he's patient, he is long-suffering, he is merciful, he's gracious, he's, right? Just write a big long list for yourself, right? Then go back and circle the ones you've experienced personally. Like you personally have experienced the patience of God in this and this and that. Thank him for those things. Rejoice in those things that you have personally experienced of God. Then ask yourself, how much have you done? Have, how much have you modeled the behavior that God has done with you? Like if you've seen God be patient with you, how patient have you been with others? Are you patient with others all the time? Or only sometimes? Or only the people that I like? Only the people that I feel pity for? Or only, you know? And ask yourself, how, how, close, how close am I imitating God in, in that behavior, in the thing that I've seen Him and know Him to do? And from that, you can start to see what needs to change so I can be like, like God in the things that I've personally experienced of Him. And that gives you a way to return back to the image in which you were created. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.